Good morning, Purpose Church. How are we doing? That was pretty weak. Let's try it again. Good morning, Purpose Church. How are we doing? Awesome. I love that. Man, it's so good to see you guys. Hey, we are wrapping up our series in the book of James. We've been in this for, I think, 12 or 13 weeks now. And, and don't worry if you're coming, you're like, man, I do not like this short, chubby guy. Where is like the real deal? He is coming back next week. Okay. So don't worry. Glenn will be back next week with a brand new series that we're really excited about. Uh, but I have the privilege and the opportunity of wrapping up our series. But before we jump into our series, I talked a little bit about camp last week and just how amazing camp was for our uh, 5th through 12th grade students. But instead of me talking about it, I wanted you to see it with your own eyes. So take a look at what camp changing lives looks like. who you are in Christ, you will see him use your life in ways that you could never imagine possible. But it begins by you knowing who you are. And that begins by you choosing whose voice you're going to listen to.
identities in Christ. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. God is your father. You are his son or daughter adopted into his family. That's your identity. Amen. 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 Now, as we invite the ushers forward to take offering, um, you know, this, this experience of camp was only made possible. It, it was only uh, able to happen for many of our students because of your generosity. And, and I just want to say to you, you know, we, we had come to you uh, early this year and we had said, hey, we need some money to help scholarship our students. And we had come to you really boldly asking and, and with a little bit of timidity asking for $30,000. We asked you to fundraise, to donate $30,000. And here's the problem, church. You didn't give $30,000. You gave $50,000 to students going to camp, which is unbelievable, unbelievable. And so uh, one of the brilliant minds on our team, uh, our high school ministry coordinator, Courtney Romero, uh, she came up with this idea. She said, you know, we've got to help people see and read some of these stories. And so what she did is she decided that we should put up the giving wall again. And this is actually our second year doing this. But, but this time in the lobby right now, the giving wall is not up there because we're asking for any money. In fact, all that's on the giving wall is dozens of pictures and dozens of testimonies written from our students about the ways that camp has changed their life. And so I want to encourage you, make sure you go and check that out. Church, can you just give yourself one more round of applause because you deserve it and you help send students to camp, which changed lives. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing that. So we are wrapping up our series. We are literally in the last few steps as we cross the finish line, as we finish this book of James. And what's so awesome is that in these last two verses, James says something that's so incredibly powerful for us. And I promise you in about 25 or 30 minutes, we're going to get to those words. We're going to look at them together. But before we get there, in order to fully understand what I think James is trying to say, we got to rewind and we're going to look at a story that Jesus told. And I think this story was Jesus' favorite story. I also think it was James's favorite story. And before that, we got to rewind and we got to remind ourselves of who James was. Because I think what James is going to try to get us to do at the end of our time together is he's going to say, I want you to be people who run like your heavenly father runs. 
That we're, we're called to run like dad. You see, what's interesting about us is we mirror or we reflect the people around us. That, that whether it's someone you admire or someone you look up to, we mirror them, that we, we reflect our lives. We look at their lives and some of their values begin to seep into ours and we begin to act like them, that we begin to sound like them. That, that became crystal clear for me. Actually, this last week on Monday was my son, Charlie. He's five years old. It was his very first day of school. Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle, or you, you remember maybe seeing that kid that you love so much going to school for that very first day. And I don't know what your reaction was like, but my reaction, I mean, you know, Charlie's walking up to school and, and we're fortunate enough that we can walk to the school. And so he has his backpack on and the backpack is like two times as big as him. You know what I mean? He's, he looks so cute. He can barely hold it because mom has packed him with literally enough food to survive a year. You know what I mean? Maybe you remember that. Maybe you remember that being that parent where we bought him a hydro flask, which is like, you know, 30 pounds alone. And then he has, you know, enough food to feed actually the whole school. And so he He's kind of carrying this backpack and he's struggling up this hill as we're walking up there and we get up to the gate and we walk over to where all of his classmates are lining up and, and there's Charlie and he, he gets in line and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the floodgates start pouring for Charlie. I mean, he just starts crying. He looks over at his mom and his mom runs over and wraps her arms around him. And I'm back here with like the other dads. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh yeah, it's no big deal, whatever. I start bawling, just just bawling, just totally crying. I'm like, nah, man, I'm good. It's, you know, allergies. I'm just crying. Just the floodgates are coming. And, and Charlie looks at me and he's crying and I'm crying. I'm like, I'm not sad. Or like, you're not going to die. It's just like emotional. You know what I mean? It's your first day and... And then we look at each other and we do something that we've been doing for a while now and we call it the man chant. It's our man chant. And it's where we look at each other and we say these things. We go, we are men. We are, just, just, just pity me for a second. Okay, we, we go, we, like I'm a man. We are men. We are brave. And we do it in the deepest voice we can. We are men. We are brave. We are strong. We serve and we love. And we just start doing this over and over. And I'm sure the teacher was like, Oh, it's one of these families. Okay. 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 And I'm going, we are men. We are brave. We are strong. And he's, he's literally like backing up with his teacher so he can still make eye contact. And he's just counting it off with me. We are men. And literally until he rounds the corner, I see him finishing that off. And that's because we mirror each other. That's because this little saying that I've taught him has become his own saying. It's his mantra. And it's something we do together. It reminds us of our connection with each other. And I tell you that story because in a moment, we're going to look at a story that I think our heavenly father wants us to mirror. But first, who was James? Let's look at these passages real quick. There's a passage in Matthew I want to show you. Matthew says this about Jesus and his siblings. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So this is where we learn in the gospels that Jesus had four brothers, one of them named James. Aren't all his sisters with us? Apparently there's like so many sisters, they can't name them. Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all? All these things. So in the Gospels, we learn that Jesus had brothers and sisters. One of them was named James. Now, the, the big question, the big question is, how did Jesus's brothers and his sisters and his family, how did they respond to this revolutionary? How, how did they respond to his message? Well, here's how they responded. For even his own brothers did not believe him. So see, James, he's the guy who 
grew up with Jesus. And Jesus teaches and heals and does all these things, and he just doesn't believe him. He doesn't believe him. In fact, it, it gets worse. Check out what Mark says. Then Jesus entered a house and again, a crowd gathered. So he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So Jesus is bringing such big crowds. He's becoming more and more popular, but this is how his family feels about him. When his family heard about this, they went to take charges of him for they said, he is out of his mind. Again, James hears and sees what Jesus is doing and absolutely thinks he's crazy. But then here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing is in the, in the first Corinthians, a letter that Paul wrote, he, he describes the miracle of the resurrection. And it wasn't just something that happened like in a vacuum somewhere and nobody saw it. In fact, there were multiple people who got to be witnesses of this resurrection and check out who makes it on the list. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, this is Peter. So he appeared to Peter, then to the 12. So all of a sudden we're gonna find out who are those people that Jesus showed up as a bodily resurrected God. Who did he show up to? He showed up to Peter and to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some, hold it real quick, though some have fallen asleep. Here's what's very interesting about this is that Paul says, hey, there's like 500 people who, who saw this whole thing and a lot of them are still around. Like if you're interested in evidence, I've got some people that you should schedule a coffee date with because they'll tell you what it is that they saw. But then somebody else, very specific, makes it on this list. Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. I don't think it's by accident that Paul includes James in this. And then Luke records it in the gospel uh, or in in, uh, Acts. He says it this way. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. So you see, James, James started thinking Jesus was a lunatic. He thought he was a liar. He was absolutely convinced that Jesus was crazy. But then after his death and witnessing his resurrection, the brother of Jesus went from thinking he was crazy to thinking he was the Christ. It's actually really interesting how history records what happened to James, the brother of Jesus. The year was 62 AD and the uh, procurator of the Judean district that James was a part of, his name was Festus and, and Festus died. And a procurator is just like a CFO. He's like, he's like the treasurer, the accountant of that area and he dies. And so there's political unrest everywhere. And so the religious leaders use that and they capitalize on that and they actually have James arrested. And And they bring James before the court and they put him on trial. And all they want James to do as the brother of Jesus is to say, hey, it was just some crazy story we made up. He wasn't actually who he said he was. None of that's true. But James, the brother of Jesus, who thought he was crazy, says this in the court of law. He screams out with courage. Jesus Christ is the son of God. I mean, he shouts at me. He is a fully convinced believer. And what history tells us is that was enough for them to convict him. And so they took him up to the highest point in the temple and they actually pushed him off. 
and he falls down and he hits the ground. And then some men surround him with some kind of clubs or sticks and they began to beat him. And then some grabbed rocks and they threw rocks at him and they stoned him until he died. But you see, it wasn't just because Jesus had nice things to say or even because Jesus healed. It was because James was absolutely convinced that he was the son of God. But here's what's crazy about James. He almost missed it. I mean, he was this close to missing it completely. And so in order to understand what James is gonna say in these last two verses of our study together, I wanna remind us of a story that Jesus told that I think was on the mind of James because it was very personal for him. He remembers being in that place and he remembers what it was like to experience God in all of his fullness dying on the cross for him and rising from the dead. And so Jesus tells this story. Find me in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, it's a little over halfway through the gospel. It says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So we've got tax collectors and sinners, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So so picture the setting. He's got Tax collectors and sinners, people that no one wants their kids to turn out like. Nobody looks at a sinner and a tax collector and says, man, that's my life dream. That's my goal right there to be like one of them. Absolutely not. But at the same time, he has over here in this corner, a group of religious people who at this moment in history are convinced that it is through their religious practices, through their piety, through their devotion to God, that God loves them. And so it's a very works-based. And over here, the, the picture of these people is, man, God could never love me. God could never want to be with me. I'm so far from God. And the picture of God for these people over here is, I'm close to God because of what I've done. Because I think Jesus wants to paint a picture of what God is really like. He will tell three stories. The last one, the one we will focus on. And it's so important because maybe some of you, you walk into this room and you have this view of God that he hates you. You have this view of God that he's disgusted you, that he wants nothing to do with you. Or you're convinced that God loves you, that you are the one maintaining the relationship because of all the good things that you do. And so with these two people together, I think Jesus had been waiting to tell these stories. And so he begins with a very short story. And he says to them, imagine you lost a sheep. Would you not leave the 99 sheep and go chase after that one? Or he says, uh, imagine a woman lost a coin. Would she not scour the house looking for that coin? And, and in that day, I want to paint this picture of what this story would have felt like for them. Imagine groups of people around Jesus as he's sharing this story. And I think they've heard him kind of give this talk before. And it's kind of impersonal at this point. Maybe it's slightly difficult for them to relate to. Or they've just heard a lot of Jesus. And so picture conversations still going on. That around Jesus, people are kind of talking and, and finishing some of their drinks and their food. And they're talking about how their kids start in TK and it's really crazy. And they're kind of slightly listening to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus tells this story. And he says, he says one line that I think everyone would have gone, ah, oh, that's interesting. And then his second sentence would have quieted the crowd completely. I mean, it would have silenced everybody. Watch how it goes. Jesus continued in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. So this story is going to center around a man. This story is going to center around a dad who's got two sons. And some people in the crowd are going, I can kind of relate with that. But 
They're not quite convinced yet that they should stop their conversations. And then Jesus says this next line that would have silenced everybody. Everybody's jaws would have hit the ground and they would have zoned in and focused in because they had no idea where this story was going. Verse 12, the younger son said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. When Jesus finished saying those words, it would have been absolute silence. Everybody would have stopped mid-conversation and they would have zoned in on Jesus because what they had just heard was the most culturally offensive thing they could imagine. It was something that they had never heard anyone say to them. It was something they couldn't even conceive a younger son saying to his father. In fact, just the fact that a younger son is speaking to his dad would have been mind-blowing because in that day, the oldest sibling was sort of a mediator. Specifically, the oldest son was a mediator between the younger siblings and between the parents. So the fact that this younger son had the guts to go talk with dad was crazy. But then the fact that the words that come out of his mouth are essentially, dad, I wish you were dead. That dad, I don't care about you at all. In fact, your only worth and value to me is in what you will give me once you die. So let's just get on with it. I mean, we can barely imagine that happening in some of our families. But back in this culture, back in this day, this was unspeakable. This was unthinkable. And everybody's wondering at this point, how quickly, how quickly is the dad going to reprimand the son? I mean, are we talking milliseconds? Are we talking seconds before this dad banishes him? Before this dad rips into him? Before this dad tells him how inappropriate and disrespectful this was? That this ruined this father's reputation? This was the most disgraceful thing possibly imaginable? And so everybody's listening and everybody's waiting. And what the father said blew their minds. So the father divided his property between them. See, this dad goes, okay, you want sin? You want to disconnect from me? You want to go off and do your own thing? Okay. You see, we can't miss it that when Jesus is painting this picture of God, he's telling the story of us. He's telling the story of our sin and our brokenness that every time we turn away from God, every time we reject God, we are like this younger son who are staring at God and going, I know you created this whole thing. I know you brought me into existence. I know that you've called me and created me to follow you, but no thanks, I'll take it from here. That I'm gonna remove you from the throne and I'm gonna put myself in your place. You see, this is the devastating nature of sin. Is that sin will lie to you and sin will tell you that you're better off without God. And remember the picture that he's painting of what God is like. Let's see what he looks like. Not long after that, verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. So he had all these fantasies and all these dreams and man, this is what life is gonna look like. This, this, this is what life was intended to be and he goes off doing the wild things that his dad would have never desired for him to do and he squanders everything he has. I mean, he literally sells himself to sin and then he ends up where sin always takes us. After that, 
After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. You see, this is what sin does is sin takes us to the place of famine. We think it's gonna take us to celebration. We think it's gonna take us to life. We think sin's gonna lead us to abundance. It's gonna give us what we actually want and the reality is it will always lead us to famine. Something I tell our students all the time is that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay and it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. See, that's what sin does is sin is this snowball effect and all of a sudden you find yourself and I find myself in places that I look back on and go, how did I get here? It's because I believe the lie that life's better off without dad. That life's better off without God. Well, it actually gets worse for this younger son. Check out what happens next in verse 15. So he went out and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I mean, the people who are first hearing this story at this moment, they're like ready to vomit. I mean, honestly, at this moment, they are ready to say, I don't know if I can hear you anymore, Jesus. Like like the the words that are coming out of Jesus' mouth as he's telling this story are so offensive and are so grotesque that some of them are going, I don't know if I can handle this anymore because what Jesus is doing is he's bringing up a picture of a pig, which for a first century Jew was an absolute no-no. And he says, this younger son, sin has so led him to a place where he is handling and working with pigs. You see, some first century scholars would tell us that in order to fully understand the sort of grotesqueness of this and and the vulgarity of this moment that we've got to sort of, as Americans and maybe as Western people, we've got to understand it in perspective. It would be like this, they would say. It would be like, I call you up or I shoot you a text or like I slide into your DM or something. And and I say, maybe some students got that. And and I say, hey, 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 do you want to come over to my house for dinner? You should come over to my house for dinner and, and you can meet my family. It's a circus, but you should come over. You can come and meet my family and hang out with them and, and, and we'll make you dinner and, and it'll be awesome. And so you decide to come over and, and we welcome you in and, and you sit down and all of us are sitting down at the table. And then we say, man, we prepared an amazing meal for you. We are just so excited for what we have prepared for you. You're gonna love this. It's gonna be great. And literally, out from the oven, we put in front of you a dead squirrel. Maybe some of you are okay with that meal. Um, For me, I'm not okay with that. And so... It would be like us putting in front of you a dead squirrel and then, and then we just begin to dive in and eat. Now, now I want you to ask yourself, what images do you have of my, me and my family when we start diving in and eating that squirrel? Like there's crazy judgment everywhere. You know what I mean? I mean, you, you maybe think you're not a judgmental person. At that point, you become very judgmental, right? At that point, you call Pastor Glenn, you're like, I don't know if he's the guy to lead our high schooler. I'm worried. I mean, you'd be very concerned because that would be absolutely unimaginable in a first century context. That's exactly the sense of um, vulgarity and, and the sense of distance that a Jewish community would want to put between themselves and a pig. You see, you see the picture that Jesus is painting is, man, our sin messes us up. That our sin takes us to places that we would look at and go, oh, that's gross. I can't believe that. 
check out what happens next in this story. But when the younger son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. So he got up and went to his father. So he does what all of us do. That when all of us sort of hit rock bottom, or all of a sudden wake up to, man, this, this is broken. This sin, this is a dead end. This is devastating. This is destructive. And we all do this same thing that this younger son does where he says, I got an idea. I'm gonna earn my way back into my father's house. That, that based on my works, based on the things I do, that I'll start off as a servant and I'll show my dad by all the things that I'm doing that he should love me again. That if I read enough of the Bible, if I show up to church enough, that if I do, 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 then God will look at me and say, I love you. So this younger son has this, what he thinks to be a brilliant idea. And then the story takes an interesting turn. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, we've read this story before. Maybe you've heard this before, but picture that you are hearing this story for the very first time. And at this moment, everyone else who has gathered around Jesus to hear this, they have not spoken a word. They have just listened because they have no idea where this is going. And at this point, they're thinking, oh, this is the moment. I mean, this is where dad gets to let him have it. This is where dad gets to tell him, you fool, you are never welcomed here again. Do you know what you did to me? Do you know how other people have looked at me? Do you know that I put my whole reputation on the line for you? Yeah, I know you ended up in famine. I mean, this is the moment where everybody's going, oh, this is like the great revenge sort of chapter in this story. I can't wait to see the way dad goes crazy on him. Then when Jesus sort of drops this bomb into the narrative, people are going, oh, I just don't know if I get it anymore. I, I, I can't fathom it because it says this. But while the younger son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with what? What was he filled with? It, it, text doesn't say he was filled with hatred. It doesn't say he was filled with disgust. It doesn't say he was filled with anger. It says that he was filled with compassion. This, this word is a really, really beautiful word in the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was originally written in. The word is splenomai. Now we're gonna do something really fun together. On the count of three, we're gonna say splenomai. One, two, three. Splenomai. Doesn't that sound like your spleen? I mean, it sounds like your stomach, Right? You see, the, the idea, the picture that's being painted in this word, compassion, is that it begins with you looking at somebody and seeing a painful thing they're going through. And, and something in you says, I've got to intervene. I've got to help. I've got to do something to fix this, that I can't stand that what they're going through, that it's literally breaking my heart. It's literally causing my stomach to be in knots, but then it always results in action. And so compassion is looking at somebody and going, man, I want to help. 
I want to serve. I want to do something, but it doesn't end with the feeling. It's culminated and it results in actions and doing something about it. And that's exactly what this father does. He runs to his son. He throws his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I mean, this, this moment is unfathomable for him. Dad literally did something he had never seen dad do before. Dad ran. In a first century context, no, dads never ran. I mean, dads sort of held that like calm, wise, like Yoda sort of posture. But this dad, this dad, he doesn't jump on a Segway. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't, you know, cue up the Corvette or the Harley and get after him. No, he literally runs. He runs as fast as he can, throws his arms around him, kisses him. Son has no idea what's going on. So he says, okay, dad, um, look, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And right there, the dad interrupts him. Right there, dad stops him because dad sees where this is going. And so he says, I won't have it anymore. And then the dad says this, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Essentially what dad says to him is, shut up. I mean, I mean, and this, I know it sounds really harsh, but, but in, in a really gracious, kind, loving way. This younger son had a whole speech plan of how he was going to earn his way back into his dad's house. And the dad, I bet this part aggravated him. And he said, no, you have a wrong picture of me. You, you have forgotten who I am. Or maybe you never understood who I was. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a robe, a ring, and sandals. And in the first century, these would have caused this dad and this son to cry. Because when he put a robe around him, what he was saying is, you're worth it to me. You're valuable. You're important. When dads gave their sons a robe, it meant that I cared about you. It meant that I noticed you. Second thing he gives his son is he gives him a ring. And in the first century, when a dad would give his son a ring, it meant that you were a leader. It meant that you had importance. It meant that there was something meaningful and purposeful for you to do with your life. And, and maybe some of you right now, man, you have been wandering and you're that younger son or younger daughter that's kind of looking back and trying to figure out what would it look like to earn my way back into God's house? How could he love me again? Today, you need to understand that when he looks at you, he wants to put a robe around you and say, I love you. That because of what my son did on the cross and in the resurrection, you are worth it to me. You are valuable to me. I love you. And so he puts his robe around you. And maybe some of you need to hear this morning, welcome home. Because you've been wandering for a while. And this is that first step for you where you're saying, look, I just need to know who you are, God. I need to know how good and how loving you are. I want to say to you, welcome home. And maybe some of you feel like, well, because of what I've been through, there's no way God could use my life. Well, here's what's incredible about God is he literally specializes. He is in the business of taking unqualified, broken people who think that there is no meaning and purpose for their life and using them to change the world. The book is full of those kinds of people. And you and me are those kinds of people. And then the last thing he gives his son was a pair of sandals. And in the first century, one of the major distinctions between a servant and a son was who was wearing the sandals. You see, he, he says to him, son, with tears in his eyes and tears in his son's eyes, he says, you're my boy. And maybe you need to hear God saying to you, you're my son, you're my daughter. 
welcome home. I'm so glad you're back. I've forgiven everything, that wild living, that place that took you to famine, that addiction. I wanna free you of it. And I wanna remind you that you're worth it, that I've got things for you to do in my kingdom and that you're my son and you're my daughter. You see some, there's, there's an older son in the story who he just doesn't get this. And the reason I call this story the running father is because the dad runs after his younger son and then he throws this party and his older son isn't a part of it. And so he literally leaves the party that he's hosting and goes towards his older son and he says, what's the matter? And he goes, well, you just never threw a party for me. And you see, he missed it as well. And the dad goes, everything I have is yours, but you've got to understand this brother of yours was lost and now he's found, he was dead and now he's alive again. See, with this picture of God in mind, with this story, I think it was, I think it was James's favorite because what James says in the last two verses of his letter sound very similar to that. Find me in James chapter five, beginning in verse 19. We only got two verses. This is our last two verses, then we're done with the text. How does James wanna end it? He ends it this way. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring them back. Now here's what's interesting about this, this word truth is it's not just an intellectual game. It's actually a lifestyle. So James is saying here, man, if, if anyone in your midst, if anyone who's a follower of Jesus should wander, should head out towards famine, towards wild living, I've got something for you to do. And if we originally saw James as kind of the person who was running and then came back, and we just saw the picture of this running father, I think James is gonna call us and command us to run like dad. And he says it this way. If anyone, if someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the way of error will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So you see for James, he's so passionate about this idea that if somebody's wandering, it's our job to help bring them back because he was one of those who was wandering that was brought back. So why do we go after the people in our lives? And I wonder if you can think about, maybe you're wandering right now and somebody's trying to bring you back. Or maybe you know somebody in your life who's a follower of Jesus who is wandering and your heart's breaking for them. Well, you're invited, you're called to bring them back. But why do we do that? It's because God runs after us. And so we run after people. But before we jump into how do you do that, and this is where we're gonna kind of land the plane, because maybe you read that and you go, okay, I just don't have a clue on how would I bring someone back? How would I help someone that was wandering sort of find life again in Jesus? What would that look like? I know I'm commanded to it, but what would it look like? Let's go back to Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us four really quick, practical, challenging steps to do that. Now, before Jesus actually gives this instruction, it's really interesting because he actually tells a story very similar to the running father. It's about this guy who loses his sheep again. 
So Jesus is reminding them of the motivation because before you ever go about bringing someone back, anyone in your life who's wandered from Jesus, before you ever go back to, before you ever begin the process of bringing them back, you need to answer two questions. And the first question is this, why are you having this conversation? Why are you trying to bring them back? If it's to make them feel guilty, if it's to show them how awful they are, if it's to ultimately have that moment where you get to say, I told you so, then don't have the conversation because you're not in the right place. Second question you need to think about is, how can I have this conversation in a way that's actually helpful? And maybe some of you are like, no, I just need to talk with them. No, no, no. Before you talk, before you talk, you need to think about how you want to talk. This may conjure an amen, I'm not sure. But gentlemen, husbands, isn't it true that it is so much about how we talk with our wives, not just what we say? Am I right? And ladies, the truth is for you as well, that in your conversations with your husbands or for all of us, if we have roommates or friends or family members, it is not just about what we say. In fact, it is so much more about how we say it. And so with those questions in mind, this is the four-step plan Jesus gives us. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. If a brother or sister sins, now brother or sister means somebody within the fold. It's a community. So this is not like your neighbor who's an atheist. This is not that soccer mom or that soccer dad who like parents differently than you do. This is somebody who's in the community who is a part of following Jesus and they have sinned. Now what's interesting is there's some early manuscripts that have this word that they've sinned or they've sinned against you. And so So whether you've observed the sin or whether it's personal for you, this is what you're called to do according to Jesus. Go, step one, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. Step one is this, have a one-on-one conversation. So if that person is wandering with the picture in mind of the running father, with that heart in you of compassion, that desire to bring them back, step one is to have a one-on-one conversation with them. Now, here's what's interesting about this. I think Jesus knew that we have the propensity and we are so... uh, naturally inclined to want to have a conversation with every other person except that person. We're we're inclined to be people that just want to talk and get like advice and whatever from all other people around the situation, but we're so timid about going to that actual person. And Jesus says, look, if somebody's sinned, if somebody's wandered from the truth, step one is you need to go have an honest one-on-one conversation with them where, where you say, hey, I I see some things going on in your life and because I care about you, because I love you, because I know that God cares about you and and has a different purpose for your life, I wanna be honest about what I'm seeing and I wanna have a conversation with you about it. Step two, Jesus says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. Awesome. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Step two is this, involve a mediator. Maybe for some of you, um, you're having a spouse, this issue with you and your spouse or a friend or a neighbor or a family member. And, and there's this tension. And as much as you try to talk it out, there's just not any sort of peace or clarity or there's not reconciliation. Jesus would say, involve a mediator. And the way I want to contextualize this is this is somebody who's maybe outside of the issue. This is somebody who's uh, uh, like a a third party who might be able to unbiasedly sort of look at your situation and help you communicate with each other. 
You see, it's so important that after that first initial conversation, if it doesn't go well, Jesus does not give us permission to just say, okay, I'm done. He says, well, now you've got to involve a mediator. And this person's job is not to gang up on whoever you're talking to. This person's job is to just be a witness of what's going on and to help you try to mend because that's always the goal. Step three, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, this is really interesting. I don't think Jesus is picturing like, you know, I got some beef with Pastor Tomiko and I get Pastor Tomiko up here and I'm like, all right, church, Tomiko and I are gonna hash this out in front of you. I don't think that's what he's picturing. That'd be horrible. That's not what we're talking about. When Jesus says the word church, I think he's picturing a small, tight-knit community. Maybe your life group. Maybe your small group. Maybe that, that group of people who are really involved and love you and care for you and are invested. And I think this is what step three is about. Begging them in community to reconsider. Again, this is not where you're trying to shove it down their throats. This is where you are saying to them in the context of a community, we are begging you to reconsider. That, that literally like, like if, if you saw somebody running off a cliff, the most loving thing you could do is get in front of them and say, would you please reconsider? Would you please think about this? Because this is not gonna end well for you. And so in community, we get together with them and we beg them. And then Jesus says these last words that I think have oftentimes been misinterpreted. And if they listen to a pagan or, or sorry, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And some of you may think, well, okay, that just means that Jesus is fine with me sort of rejecting them or hating on them. But this is what Jesus would say about some tax collectors. Matthew chapter nine, beginning in verse nine says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So you know what step four is? Is you treat that person like Jesus treats that person. And how does Jesus treat that person? He invites them over for dinner. See that person that's wandering for you Maybe they need you in full honesty to be real with them, to get in that community and say, man, things are not going well. But you know what they don't need is for you to disconnect and for you to detach from the relationship. So let's love like Jesus loved. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together in the book of James. Thank you for the invitation to be like you, Jesus. As James, your own brother, was figuring out what it meant to follow you. I thank you that at the end of his life, he said, Jesus, you're worth it because you told me I was worth it. God, I pray that we would take these words from James, that we would seek after those that are wandering in our lives right now, but with the heart of our father, with a remembrance that God, you have run after us. And so we will run after those that you love and that you care for. So God, help us to run like dad.
Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Would y'all stand up with us as we worship?